This is Foster McCurley from the Wrestling with the Word podcast, and this is our discussion of the Bible text for March 7, 2010. This is episode 63. Four Bible passages are listed in the Revised Common Lectionary for each Sunday. I try to connect most of them by the way they relate to the theme in the Gospel for the day. This Sunday is called the Third Sunday in Lent Year C. Check out the show notes on the lessons at wrestlingwiththeword.com. You'll find there some comments on the Hebrew and Greek words that are important in the passages, as well as some cross-references to other biblical texts that help illumine the ones we are studying. The biblical passages for the third Sunday in Lent are these. The psalm is Numbers 63, verses 1 through 8. The first lesson is Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. The second lesson is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13, and the Gospel for the day is Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. Like a loving parent, God is not only patient, but unconditionally loyal to the children. The Hebrew Bible calls that loyalty chesed, and the word is usually translated steadfast love, more Accurately, it means covenant loyalty. It means the loyalty within a relationship that's already been established. Throughout the Bible, God teaches the people from infancy about love and kindness and faithfulness. God extends arms of welcome and showers forgiveness, even through teenage rebellions. The point comes, however, when God expects the kids to grow up, take responsibility, call home daily, and live lives among the rest of the siblings that honor this loving parent. The Bible calls that summons repentance, turning around, not only to face the music, but to make the music a parent loves to hear from the family chorus. Let's begin then with the psalm for the day, which is number 63, verses 1 through 8. The psalm is a prayer song. The psalmist seems to be spending the night in the temple, in the shadow of your wings, that would be under the outstretched wings on the Ark of the Covenant, in order to seek the Lord and the Lord's protection from enemies. The poet expresses a powerful longing for the Lord's presence as a person longs for water during a drought. And in the sanctuary he has envisioned already the Lord's power and glory. The poet offers praise, blessing, and prayer, because the chesed, the covenant loyalty, what's translated steadfast love of the Lord, is more important even, he says, than life itself. That's so very clear in verse 3. Because the steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise thee. During this night of sanctuary in the Lord's presence, the poet reflects on the abundance of peace and comfort like a sumptuous banquet that the Lord has given and will again provide. The whole image of feasting as with marrow and fat all caused the poet to sing for joy. What a beautiful psalm it is, and it certainly points forward to everything else about seeking the Lord and turning to the Lord for help that we're going to run into in lesson after lesson for this day. It's a matter of counting on the Lord's chesed in order to make that quest to seek the Lord 
and reap all the benefits of the Lord's presence and help. The first lesson is Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. I summarize the passage like this. To a people in exile, apparently lost and forsaken by God, the Lord extends to them the covenant promise God once made to David, and with his unfathomable ways invites sinners to turn to him so that he might have mercy. Throughout Second Isaiah, the theological context of the Babylonian exile looms large. Obviously it was important enough that sociologically the people who once resided and did well in the city of Jerusalem now were serving as slaves in the land of Babylon. That's critical, and that's very important. But what lies behind that in terms of their spiritual issue, or their theological interpretation of what had gone wrong? According to Isaiah 40, verse 27 and 49:14, the problem which this prophet encounters is the people's feeling of being forgotten or forsaken by God, even deprived of the Lord's justice. Just listen to these words in Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right, that's actually the word justice, and my justice is disregarded by my God. Why do you say that? In other words, that's really what's on their mind. That's what they are lamenting. And that truly is a lament, which is so often in the Psalms. But here it is, the whole second Isaiah, this preaching of the prophet between Isaiah chapters 40 and 55, is all a response to this lament. It's a lament that appears again in chapter 49, verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. That's a lament. That's all what laments are all about, the apparent forsakenness, God-forsakenness of the people. Now, out of this experience of exile grew many, many psalms of community lament. One of those was Psalm 89. That psalm portrays in so many powerful ways what's going to happen in this particular pericope. Psalm 89 extols the Davidic covenant as an everlasting covenant, and it's based on the chesed of God, so we learn right in the first couple of verses of the psalm. The psalm goes on to then acclaim the power of Yahweh in the heavenly court based upon God's bringing chaos under control, slaying the monsters of old and taking the rightful seat in the assembly of the gods. And then the psalm announces that Yahweh transferred his power over the sea and over chaos to the anointed king of the Davidic line. Now, that takes us all the way up to verse 37 in his psalm, but then what happens is a lament. A lament in which the people accuse Yahweh of forsaking that promise and leaving them in a precarious situation, an exile. Specifically, that psalm lament of Psalm 89 concludes with this question, Lord, where is your chesed, your covenant loyalty, your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? This passage is a direct response to that question at the end of Psalm 89. It's a powerful, powerful passage. The passage begins with an invitation. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and whoever has no money, come by and eat. 
come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It sounds like the invitation that wisdom, with a capital W, issues to people in Proverbs chapter 9 and a couple of times in the book of the wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach. In chapter 9 of Proverbs, verse 5, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave simpleness, and live, and walk in the way of insight. In Sirach, chapter 24, verse 19, Come to me, you who desire me, and eat your fill of my produce. And it goes on to say, For those who eat me will hunger for more, and those who drink me will thirst for more. And this, of course, is the way to life in the wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach. In fact, the book ends with that kind of invitation. In chapter 51 of Sirach, verse 25, I opened my mouth and said, Get these things for yourselves without money. It's a freebie. And it sounds so much like the words of Jesus at John 7, verse 37, If anyone thirst, let that person come to me and drink. Now at Isaiah 55, it goes on in verse 3 to say, Incline your ear and come to me, hear that you may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. But note this connection, incline your ear and come to me. That's all part of the invitation to this meal. Hear, listen, that you may live. This connection between coming to God and hearing in order to live sounds so much like a connection that Jesus makes in the fifth chapter of John, verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me, there it's in the negative, to come to me that you may have life. You notice that, you come to Jesus, the Son of God, and have life. Wisdom is offering that as the word of God in the 55th chapter of Isaiah. Come to me, hearken to me, that you may have life, that you may live. And then God says, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now that everlasting covenant is a concept we've discussed on previous episodes because it's a very, very critical matter in the Old Testament that many of the covenants that God makes are called everlasting. And they are everlasting because they are covenants in which God obligates only God's self. There are no conditions placed on humans. If there were, there couldn't be an everlasting covenant because it only lasts a minute and a half. But these are divine oaths, really. They are covenants in which God obligates God's self. God made that kind of covenant to Abraham and certainly with David. We have a reference to it indeed in Psalm 89 that we already talked about. And we have it in Second Samuel 23 and other places in the Bible. Take a look at the show notes to see where they all occur. They're covenants which have no obligations placed on the people. God is taking everything on God's self. In Psalm 89, verse 2, the covenant with David that God made everlasting grew out of the Lord's chesed and faithfulness. And that's really what comes up here too. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. That is very literally my faithful acts of chesed for David. The whole covenant that God is now promising is just like the covenant that God made with David. But here's the interesting thing. It is not a repetition of the Davidic covenant. It is an everlasting covenant like the one God made with David, but it is made with you, with the people, with those who are in exile and in our suffering. To them, God is now promising an everlasting covenant. All you have to do is listen, wise up, hear it, 
Accept it, incline your ear, and come to me that you may live. And in that process I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, just like the chesed that I showed to David I am now showing to you, you you who are exiles in a land, you who claim that I have forsaken you, you who ask, Lord, where is your chesed of old, which you swore to David? The answer is, it's right here, and it's being given to you. I am who I am, and I am full of chesed. Now, where this really gets to be stupendous is in verse 5, when God says that the nations that you don't even know are going to run to you because of, here's why they're going to run, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Now that's interesting because normally in the Bible people are talking about glorifying God. And now here is God's promise in the midst of this everlasting covenant based on God's chesed that he is glorified Israel, the people of Israel who are exiles, who have felt God forsaken for 70 years. The expression occurs elsewhere only in chapter 60 of Isaiah, where it's preceded immediately, as here, by the Holy One of Israel. Somehow that, that title, the Holy One of Israel, goes with God's glorifying the people of Israel, and it connects somehow to the coming of the nations. It somehow sets Israel up as the means by which nations will come to the Lord through Israel, the one whom God has glorified. The invitation then in verse 6 is to seek the Lord. Just as the psalmist said in Psalm 63, our psalm for the day, he was going to seek the Lord. So here the Lord offers that invitation. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And it goes on to say, Let the righteous return to the Lord. Why? That he may have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let him return to the Lord. This call, a repeated emphasis in Deuteronomy and all the way through the Deuteronomistic history to Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, it's not to say that it did not exist in the pre-exilic times. We have it in a number of cases, return to the Lord, because the people were wandering off, going here or there after their, after the gods of Canaan. And we also have it in post-exilic writings, but there's something about this invitation to return to the Lord that becomes so critical in the time of exile because God is there with open arms to welcome them home and to give them life, and he will abundantly pardon. That's the beauty of Second Isaiah's preaching. God has come to announce their forgiveness, the end the end of their time of iniquity. Their penalty is all over. God has come to forgive them, pardon them, and take them home. Now, why is that possible? Well, it isn't really from a human point of view that God would so utterly turn things around that they could come home again, as though nothing ever happened. But my thoughts are not your thoughts, God said to the people. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God's ways are different. God is capable of this incomprehensible forgiveness and pardon, no matter what we've done. And that's the power of the preaching of Second Isaiah to people who felt God forsaken, who felt their justice was gone, who felt God had forsaken them, hadn't listened to them for years and years, and they felt that indeed the chesed of God had disappeared. This prophet's preaching is assurance that the chesed of God is alive and well and reaching out to the people in their worst of times.
the Gospel for the day is from the 13th chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 9. Jesus indicates here that because those who suffer tragedy are not worse sinners than others, God gives to all the guilty another opportunity to reform their lives and to bear fruit. According to the end of chapter 11, the Pharisees are now putting all kinds of pressure to catch Jesus in some way that would give them an excuse to report him. Now, as Jesus goes his way toward Jerusalem in chapter 12, he teaches both the multitudes and his disciples. And in fact, just as chapter 12 comes to a conclusion, he's talking to the multitudes, according to verse 54. And now when we get to our lesson, we're told that some were present at that very time, who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't really have any record of that, per se, in the New Testament, nor do we actually have any other record of it as an individual act in any other writings from the Roman period. But according to the writings of Josephus, it would not be unlike Pilate to have accomplished such an atrocious deed. It would probably have been Galileans who had traveled down into Jerusalem, where they would give their sacrifices in the temple, and in the course of their offering of sacrifices, Pilate had them killed and mingled their own blood with the sacrificial blood. And now again, there is no real evidence to indicate that that happened precisely, but again, it is possible that it did. Now the response of Jesus to that, however, is to raise a whole different kind of question. They're talking about this tragedy and almost indicating they want Jesus to say something about Pilate. Instead, Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered like this? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he goes on to extend his question, or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now that in itself is a pericope, verses 1 through 5. It's really a very particular teaching in regard to a question that was raised to Jesus in the course of his way to Jerusalem. Going through some of the villages, someone asked him to respond to this issue about Pilate's slaughtering of Galileans. And Jesus' teaching there reminds us very much of the teaching in the Gospel of John in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, about the reason why the blind man was born blind. Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus really went on to talk about something quite different that actually distinguished a person's sin from a person's fate. And so here, Jesus is once again saying, as he implied then, that a particular suffering does not indicate the degree of sinfulness to which a person is guilty. That's a very important concept because overall the New Testament will announce that all of us have sinned and keep falling short of the glory of God. It's not a matter of determining who is guilty or more guilty on the basis of what experiences some people had. That would be very typical of the wisdom teachings in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere in the ancient world. One could actually determine whether a person was good or evil on the basis of whether or not he or she was experiencing prosperity or harm. That correlation that was so typical in wisdom teaching, Jesus now completely dismisses raises an entirely different question. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All, notice. Now what he's doing, of course, is indicating that repenting, turning to God, is really the issue. It is really not a matter of how sinful other people are. It's whether or not 
you return, repent, turn around, stop going your own direction, and walk into the welcoming arms of God. That's really what Jesus is after. And he then tells a parable to illustrate the point that this possibility of turning around is there. Just take advantage of it. He told about the fig tree that a man planted in his vineyard, and he came out and saw that it wasn't bearing any fruit. And so he said to his vine dresser, Cut this thing down. I've been seeking fruit on this tree for years, and it doesn't do anything. Cut it down. And the vine dresser said, Let it alone, sir. Give it another chance. Let me prune it and let me fertilize it and see what happens next year. And if it doesn't, then you can cut it down. But if it does bear fruit, well and good. That's really Jesus' parable to indicate that repentance is there. It's the opportunity that God gives us to turn to him and be saved. It's just like that teaching we ran into in Isaiah 55. God calls us to turn, come to me, and be saved. Come to me and live. Repent and accept my forgiveness. That's really all that God asks, is to turn it all around. Get with the program that God is offering and live. That's what Jesus teaches, and that's what Jesus will eventually die for. The second lesson is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. My summary of the passage goes like this. God uses the history of the people of God in the past to instruct and warn the people of God in the present always acting out of faithfulness to carry us through. The passage is a very interesting one insofar as Paul uses the history of the people of Israel from the time of the Exodus and particularly into the wilderness wanderings in order to offer warnings and instructions for the congregation to which he's writing, namely the Christians in Corinth. He starts off by assuring them that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and we're talking about the Reed Sea or the Red Sea in the time of Moses, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same supernatural food, and all ate the same supernatural drink. That's a reference to the food and drink, as we just saw it in the first lesson from Isaiah chapter 55. The food and the drink is gift from God, but Paul indicates that they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so there's there's a kind of foretaste of the feast to come, if you will, that the people already experienced in the time of the wilderness. It was kind of the gift of God that nourishes food and drink, not only physically, but spiritually, if one can make that distinction at all, when it comes to the personhood in the biblical period. It's the wholeness that God is concerned about. It is the whole person that God is caring for in offering food and drink, and ultimately that nourishment is Jesus Christ. Now Paul indicates that all these things are warnings not to go their route but to find a different route. We must not indulge in immorality as some of them did. We must not, he says in verse 9, put the Lord to the test as some of them did. No, he said, these things are all for our warning and they were all written down for our instruction. And then he brings it to the conclusion like this. Therefore, anyone who thinks that he stand, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to human beings. God is faithful. 
Now remember that. That's what we've been running into in every lesson so far. God is faithful. God has steadfast love. God has covenant loyalty. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. All that because God is faithful. Now there's a real sense in which Paul is using an Old Testament reference Once again, just as he talked about this whole wilderness experience, this whole exodus experience, so this notion that God is faithful is critical. It sounds so much like the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love and chesed with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And that faithfulness ultimately resulted in God's gift of his Son on a cross. And that's what nourishes us all. That is the supreme example of the faithfulness of God, of God's chesed. It is that faithfulness of God, that chesed, that enables us to withstand all the trials and tribulations and temptations of life, because God is with us in spite of ourselves. It's amazing when you think about it how these different lessons could lead us to think that this is primarily about our behavior. But ultimately, as you think about all the lessons, one after another for the day, they really focus on the faithfulness of God. That's where our hope is. That's where our future is. That's where our present is with God beside us. That ends our discussion of the passages for the third Sunday in Lent, Year C. In the next episode, we will talk about the lessons for the fourth Sunday in Lent. You will benefit, I think, from reading in advance of the podcast the biblical passages for the day. They will be Psalm 32. The first lesson will be Joshua 5, verses 9 through 12. The second lesson is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21, and the gospel for the day will be the well-known parable of the prodigal son, Luke 15, 1 through 3, and verses 11b through 32. Be sure to look up the show notes in the accompanying blog at wrestlingwiththeword.com to help you prepare for listening. Before signing off, I want to thank Briaris Nada for the music during this Lenten season. The song is called Mellow Mix, and I am especially grateful to my daughter, Dana Gillen, who serves as my producer for these podcasts. Until next time, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you.